The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. welcome. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation, the thoughts of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is the second Sunday of Advent, and Advent as a season is somewhat hard to understand, just like the English language. For those of us who've grown up speaking English, it, we oftentimes forget how strange a language it is, how irregular and inconsistent it is. For example, consider these sentences. The bandage was wound around the wound, or the soldier decided to desert his tasty dessert in the desert. Since there, or since there is no time like the present, he thought it was time to present the present to his girlfriend. Confusing. You, do you know what these are called? Nobody? Nobody? It's a lot of people here. Homonyms. There are these words that are spelled alike, but have more than one meaning and more than one sound. And when they're pronounced differently, they're called heteronyms. Much like our season of Advent, I think, is like a heteronym to our culture's holiday season. Now, there's some similarities, and at first glance, people mistake them as being the same, but they're quite different. Our holiday season seeks to focus us on things that Advent doesn't seek to focus us on at all. Things like spending money and buying gifts and throwing parties and eating and drinking. Yet we come into worship in Advent and we hear John the Baptist tell us, just as Craig just read, to repent, to give up things, to take things off and to cast away. He he wants us to make room in our hearts and our lives for Jesus who is to come and to do so by getting rid of anything that competes for supremacy in our hearts and our lives with Jesus. Advent is heteronomic which is a word I think I just made up, but I like it. And as I told you last week, during Advent, we watch and we wait for Jesus. And to wait and watch well, we have to do two things this morning. Number one, embrace the tension. And number two, know our identity. First of all, embrace the tension. We're focusing on this New Testament book of 1 Peter during Advent because Peter threads Jesus' second coming throughout everything that he writes. 
And last week I explained and emphasized that Peter uses this word exile, which you find in the very first verse here in chapter one. And it's a framework word. It's this paradigm through which we're to see everything about ourselves as Christians, as well as everything about our life in this world and our relationship to this world. Very simply, followers of Christ are exiles, but not just exiles. Because notice he attaches an adjective to this word, and that adjective is this word elect. And I hope you hear and even feel the tension between these two words, elect, exiles. To be an exile, as I told you last week, is to be an outcast, is to be someone who is unwanted. They're, they're wandering through, sojourning through someone else's country, and they're seeking to maintain their own distinctiveness while in that country because they have a home. The the country they're now in is not their home. They want to go back to their home. They're not there. They try to maintain their distinctiveness culturally in terms of their conduct, in terms of everything about them. And there's often reprisals, even greater suffering and rejection because of their distinctiveness. And Peter here emphasizes a distinctiveness of lifestyle and behavior. It's one that begins here in chapter one, finishes the chapter and moves into chapter two, where in verse 11 and 12, he writes what we've already read, which is beloved I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct. There's the distinctiveness. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles and non-Christians honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, and evidently they will, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. The day of his visitation is the second coming. So hopefully you hear all of the tensions and all of the contrast threaded throughout that. It's the same one that he mentions in chapter one. They are beloved, Peter says, but also sojourners and exiles living very, very different lives in the midst of a world that will often reject them and even slander them, speak against them. And this begs the question, if anyone ever speaks ill against us because of our distinctiveness, because of the way that we're living, acting, not because we do things that deserve condemnation or critique. I recently had someone who is a a Christian but doesn't worship here at All Saints tell me about the persecution he was experiencing at work. He said he'd been reprimanded at work by his boss because of how he was treating his coworkers. And he said it was because of how outspoken about his Christian faith that he was at work and and that the non-Christians around him were trying to silence him. He said it was spiritual warfare. And I wondered, was it really? And so I began asking him a few questions about the specifics of these reprimands. And I realized that my friend was not so much outspoken about the Christian faith as much as he was just outspoken about everything and everyone at work, always noticing every little thing that was wrong, always refusing or failing to recognize anything that was good or praise or encourage anyone around him, which made him harsh. And it made him unkind and hypocritical. And so when blowback would come upon him because of the storms, all the relational difficulty that he himself had created, he became immediately the Christian victim, seeing and assuming all sorts of Machiavellian subplots against him. And he was a close enough friend that I could tell him, and I had to tell him, you're not being persecuted at work because you're a Christian. You're experiencing conflict in the workplace because you're acting like a jerk. And that's it. He was doing exactly the opposite of what Peter says here in our passage. Both in chapter one and chapter two, he speaks about passions. You see that there, that word in chapter one, verse 14, passions of your 
former ignorance, meaning before you are a Christian. And, and don't think romantically or, or sexually when you hear the word passions. It's not that sort of passion. It's any inordinate drive or, or desire that becomes all-consuming and all-controlling. And for my friend, it was this compulsion to be seen as right and to be proven as right and vindicated in all of his opinions and all of his perspectives, matters of secondary importance that, that decent, rational people can understandably disagree on. And he was conformed to this passion. So much so it was twisting him up into this, this wreath of, of wrath, this passion that he had was becoming for him a vice. And remember what a vice is. It's not just an individual act of sin or disobedience. It's, it's rather an act, something that you do over and over and over again. So that becomes second nature to you and reflexive to you. And the way that you feel and the way that you act, it becomes the only way that you can respond because your soul has been so particularly malformed or twisted up. I've told you before that the words wreath, wrath, and wraith, all have the same root word. And it's the root word that means to twist. A wraith in folklore is a ghost that can't quit haunting some place or some person because of some wrong that happened in that place or by that person. They're so intertwined and twisted up with that wrong that they can't move on. And some of you know what that is like. Something was done to you and it haunts you so much so that you haunt it. You dwell on it. You dwell on that person and what they did. It's make you, made you bitter and resentful. You can't let go. Anytime that person's name comes up, you immediately slip into saying something negative about them and immediately begin to defend yourself because you're conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, as Peter says. Thomas Aquinas, so many years ago, offers a threefold test to know if we're conformed to the vice of wrath and anger. He says, we are if we get angry too easily, number one, or number two, we get disproportionately angry compared to the thing that was done, or number three, we stay angry too long. The first is irritability, the second is irascibility, and the third is bitterness. And that's just one passion that we can be conformed to, but it's a big one for us and for our culture. Because as a people, we're increasingly wrathful. We're not a sober culture, which is the word that Peter uses here in verse 13, if you notice it. He says there also, prepare your minds for action. Literally, it means gird up the loins of your mind which is a fascinating phrase. I've told you before, to gird up your loins meant to take the hem of your long robe, which they wore then, to pull it up between your legs and to wrap it around your waist to create what was functionally what we now call shorts so that they could run or move around without tripping on their long robes. And Peter says, do this with your mind. In other words, you gotta think differently as a Christian. You have to think critically, not in the negative sense of the word, but in the original sense of the word of thinking deeply and precisely and not simply accepting anything that you hear, but examining it and testing it. And we don't do that as a culture. We are increasingly an echo chamber culture, a soundbite, slogan-driven culture with little depth or nuance or complexity in our thought. We're not sober-minded. To be sober, you know what it means to be sober. It means to be steady. It means to, to not fall this way or that, to not be lost or confused or wandering, to not be loose or loud, but controlled and self-disciplined and not intoxicated or overwhelmed by whatever this person says or, or this idea or this claim, regardless of how loud the claim is being made. That's what it means to be sober-minded, and we're not. 
But Peter says something can make us sober-minded. The end of verse 13, he says that the second coming can. The world as it will be then. And as I said last week, the very heavenly inheritance that Christians will receive, and that's the grace he speaks about in verse 13. He's reflecting back on what he's already said. And last week, I told you that if you are a Christian, you are a spiritual heavenly billionaire. You can't even begin to imagine all that you will be given at the second coming of Christ. So if you are a Christian, that's who you are. And that should impact how you think. Verse 13. It should also, and it will also, according to Peter, impact how you behave now, which is verse 14 and on through verse 17. So there is an unavoidable tension if you are a Christian, in your life, and there always will be, you cannot resolve it. And that is you are an exile here. And that means to some degree rejected and to some degree unwanted. And there will likely be conflict. There will likely be disagreement and difficulty. But Peter insists throughout the entire book, we are not to be the primary source of it. It's not to originate with us. In fact, later in chapter two, he says this to summarize what he's talking about, how we're to behave in regards to the world. He says, honor everyone. Do you honor everyone? Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And remember who the emperor was. He was Nero. He's a madman. And we can do this, Peter says, because of the grace that is coming to us, because we're not living for this world, but living in this world and living to serve and to bless this world. But ultimately, we're living for the world that is to come and the one who will bring it. And the one who will bring it has already chosen us and he loves us. Which brings me to point two, and that is knowing our identity. Very simply, but very foundationally and importantly, if you are a Christian, you are a child of God. That is who you are. And who God is and how he acts, what his character and his behavior is, that is what you are to be conformed to and nothing else. So listen to me. Our present relationship with God and our future inheritance from him, and not our past ignorance. That is what our lives are to be shaped by. Our present relationship, our future inheritance, and not our former ignorance, which is when we didn't know God, and when we didn't know what he's like. But now, Peter says, you know. You know who he is. You know what he's like. And you have this new spiritual vitality dwelling in you. That's what he begins the entire letter with by talking about being a born again. And so your conduct, your life can't help but be shaped by him because his life now dwells in you. And it's not just that his life dwells in you, but he loves you. He loves you beyond anything that you could ever begin to imagine as all parents love. Peter begins this letter by calling these Christians elect or chosen, meaning chosen by God. And then in verse two, which I've also printed for you here. He goes on to speak about the foreknowledge that God had of you. In the scriptures, being chosen and foreknown is inextricable from being loved by God. God's choice of you and God's love of you always go hand in hand. They're always threaded and intertwined. And so if you read the Bible, you'll always find these themes together, never apart. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter seven, which is talking to Israel about how they are to think and how they are to live once they enter into the land of Cain and the promised land and they receive everything God said that he would give to them. He said this, verse seven, Deuteronomy seven, it was not because you were more in number than any other people. It wasn't because you were bigger. It wasn't because you were somehow stronger or more attractive or, or impressive. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you. There are those themes. But, verse 8, it's because the Lord loves you. 
So why did God choose Israel to be his Old Testament people? And why did he love them? Well, he chose them because he loved them. And he loved them because he loves them. And that's it. And the same is true if you are a Christian. He chose you because he loved you. And he loves you because he loves you. That is who you are. That is your identity. That's what Peter calls you, beloved. And the best illustration that I have for this, this type of love, the love of parents, is the love of parents for an unborn child. And every parent here knows what it's like to be pregnant and what it's like for you to have this inexplicable, mysterious love for this child, even though you've never seen this child, even though you've never heard this child's voice, you love this child. And one of the hardest but most profound and most beautiful things that I've ever done as a pastor was several years ago. And I think I've told you of this story, but a couple from our church lost their child at 36 weeks pregnant. Mother had to be induced to deliver the baby who was already dead. It was a little girl. She was a little girl. And I went up to the hospital and I performed a naming ceremony for this little girl because you can't baptize a dead body, but you can pronounce their name upon them and you can mark them with the sign of the cross and you can pray, which is what we did. As you can imagine, it was a very difficult thing to do, not only for me, but also especially for the parents. The parents named her Birdie. So I held Birdie and I sang a brief lullaby to her and I marked her with the sign of the cross as a sign that, that God knows her, that he foreknew her before the foundation of the world. And and so too do we know her and choose her and love her as her church. And and also, especially that is true of her parents and that they, they, they love her even still. And you could feel it in that room. The love for those parents was palpable, even though they never saw any life in her eyes, they deeply, deeply loved her and still do to this day. And friends, God's love for you is just like that, but infinitely more if you are a Christian. God has foreknown you and loved you before the foundation of the world. That, Peter says, is who you are. There's a massive conceptual mistake that I think is wreaking havoc on our culture right now. And it's this idea and this belief that identity is discovered individually, that each individual person has to, to go out into the world and to figure out who it is that they are for themselves, what it means to be them and and, and what the goal and the purpose of their life is, what meaning there is for them in life, the purpose and significance, what gives them value. Our, Our children hear this, we hear this, that who they are, their purpose and significance is all up to them. They've got to figure it out, achieve something, accomplish something in order to secure their identity. And I want you to know that no society in the history of the world has ever said anything like that. Throughout the entire history of the world, we have always said, human, human race has always said, your identity is conferred upon you communally by parents, by a people, by a tribe, by a community of some sort, that who you are is dependent upon who we are. Who you are and how you will live is predicated upon us. That's what Peter is saying here in verses 14 through 17. He's saying, who you are as beloved chosen child of God, your identity, it will determine how you live and how you live will be holy because the the one to whom you belong is holy. But we flip it in the modern world and we say who you are is unknown. So try this, experiment with this, do, do this, discover any and all things. And then at some point you'll figure out who you are. Then you'll discover your identity. Peter says the exact opposite. 
He doesn't say behavior leads to the discovery of identity. He says your bestowed identity leads to your very distinct and holy behavior. And I can't help but think that it's this modern notion of identity discovery, at least in part, that is crushing so many younger people in these younger generations. Uh, And in part, the cause of the high rates of anxiety and depression among the youth and young people. An article came out in the Atlantic about a year ago entitled, Why American Teens Are So Sad. And according to the CDC, from 2009 to 2021, the share of American high school students who feel persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose from 25% to 45%, which is a massive jump statistically. More than one in four girls reported having seriously contemplated suicide, which is twice the rate of boys. And sadness among white teens is rising faster than other groups. But basically, every measure of mental health is getting worse among every demographic among teens. And the question this article asks is simply why? Derek Thompson, the author, he offers four main forces. Number one, social media. But he doesn't vilify social media. He rather compares it somewhat thoughtfully, I think, to alcohol saying it's a mildly mildly addictive substance that can enhance some social situations, but also lead to dependency and depression among some. And then also he says, number two, sociality is down, obviously related to the use of social media. And he argues that probably the biggest problem with social media is not what it is in itself, but the various social activities that it replaces. And then thirdly, the third force is news, the, the constant barrage of news because the world is stressful. And there's more news now communicating and talking about all of its stressors. Basically, he argues that we aren't protecting our kids enough from what they aren't ready to handle, and we're exposing them too early to too many things. And then number four, though, he says we're not exposing them to difficult things that they need to face and learn how to face. Because so many modern parenting strategies revolve around accommodation. So if a little girl's afraid of dogs... The parents do everything possible to keep her away from dogs. And doing this generally, globally, as a parenting strategy will keep kids from learning how to deal with difficulty and defeat and disappointment and not be crushed by it. And then they become adults and they can't handle difficulty at all. And so you couple all of these with this modern message of your identity is up to you. So go out into the world and figure it out. And no wonder so many younger people and younger generations are struggling. Instead, could listen to Peter. And he says, this is who you are. You are a child of God. You are chosen and beloved and everything about you flows from him and hinges upon him and relates to who he is as God and everything that he has done for you through Jesus. That is the foundation of your life. That is the meaning of your life. That is the goal of your life, him, to know him, to love him, to worship him. 500 years ago, the Westminster Confession of Faith, shorter catechism question, number one, it's probably the only thing you've ever heard of the Westminster Confession of Faith, but it's famous and so good. Simply ask the question, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that is why Jesus came. He came because he is the son of God to die for the forgiveness of our sins, but to share his status, his relationship with the father, with us, his life in the spirit with us, that we might know who we are by knowing whose we are. John Trapp, a friend of mine, senior pastor at Christ the King in Houston, he turned me on to this illustration years ago of Ken Venturi. 
who was a golfer in the 1970s, and he won a couple of majors, became the longtime commentator on the Masters, one of those soft talkers on the Masters where they talk really soft. That's Ken Venturi. He's a great young player. He was projected to, to be one of the greats of his years and maybe one of the all-time greats, but he developed carpal tunnel syndrome in his hands, and he kept re-injuring them. So finally, he went to see a top specialist in San Francisco with his father. And the doctor, at the end of the exam, basically said, you've got two choices. You can continue to do therapy and continue playing golf temporarily, but you'll probably eventually lose the use of your hands. Or I can do this surgery and you'll retain the use of your hands, but you'll never play golf again. And so he said, I know it's a big decision. I'm going to give you a few moments. So he stepped out and left Ken there with his dad. And Ken sat in silence in the room. Finally, the doctor comes back and Ken looks at his dad. He doesn't know what to do. And so his father stands up, walks over to his son, kisses him, looks him in the eyes and says, Ken, you're the best I ever saw. And then Ken looks at his doctor and says, okay, do the surgery because my dad thinks I'm good. And that is it, friends. That is what Peter is saying. Because Ken Venturi's thinking, his choices, his behavior, his emotions, everything was predicated upon one thing. One thing. And that one thing is his relationship with his father. Nothing else mattered more. Nothing else moved him more. Nothing. And that is what Peter is saying. You are the beloved of God. You are chosen by God the Father. In and through Christ, you are a child of God. And nothing matters more. Nothing else should move you more. Nothing else should conform you to itself. This is your identity. This is your life. Yes, exiles in the world, rejected by the world, but that is nothing compared to your identity in Christ with the Father. So conduct yourselves with honor, honorably among those who reject and revile you. Think differently about yourself. Think soberly about this world. Set your hope on the world that is to come. Live for it. Live for the one who will bring it because he loves you and he has chosen you and you belong to him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us that we might know you, that we might believe you, believe in you in you, and all that you have done for us, that you have set your love upon us and made us your own. May that be what conforms us to true life, to real life, and lead us in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.